the May 4th edition of Global Dialogue. I'm Patrick Ryan, President of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Thanks for joining us this evening. Uh, we're pleased to bring a, a special presentation of Global Dialogue today to talk with uh, Professor Mark Katz about uh, Iran and Russia. And we welcome uh, Mark uh, to join us uh, this evening from Fairfax, Virginia. Mark, good to see you. Good to see you. Before we uh, get started, I'd like to thank our uh, sponsors and uh, partners uh, for the program tonight. Uh, we're very appreciative of Belmont University Center for International Business for their support of the World Affairs Council, as well as the International Business Council of the National Area Chamber of Commerce. And we'd also like to, uh, uh, to thank the George Mason University Schar School of Policy and Government uh, for uh, producing uh, Mark uh, with us this evening, as well as the uh, Wilson Center Kennan Con uh, Conversations uh, series. Um, our topic tonight, uh, Russian leaders in czarist times, the Soviet decades and the modern Rus Russian Federation have had designs on its periphery to the South uh, for centuries. They've made advances and suffered setbacks whether through an external or internal disruptions. Uh, however, Russia has always uh, sought to return uh, its glance to the Middle East as uh, an area to exert its influence. So tonight we're going to talk about one aspect of Moscow's influence and relations in the region, its connections with Iran. To do that, we have the preeminent scholar on this topic, Professor Mark Katz. Uh, Mark Katz is a professor of government and politics at George Mason University's Shar School. He earned a BA in international relations from the University of California at Riverside in 1976, a master's in international relations from the John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies in 1978, and a PhD in political science from MIT in 1982. He uh, was a visiting scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington in 2017, and then at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs in Helsinki. And I believe Mark is still uh, working with the Finnish Institute. But during 2018, he was a Fulbright scholar at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, and was then the 2018 Sir William Luce Fellow at Durham University in the UK. And I was uh, privileged to, uh, to join Mark at uh, Durham uh, for his uh, presentation uh, as the Loose Fellow. That was a, a wonderful event. In February 2019, he was appointed a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Uh, Professor Katz's uh, research focuses on Russian foreign policy, especially towards the Middle East and the international dimensions of revolution against the backdrop of years of conflict, rising tensions, and mass population movements in the Middle East, interventions of Russia in the region have caught attention of the world. Professor Katz, uh, as I mentioned, is also a non-resident scholar at uh, the Atlantic Council, the Rafikiri Center for the Middle East. Uh, he is the author of numerous books on Soviet and Russian foreign policy, especially toward the third world. He has scores of archived video briefings and seminars and enough articles papers and reports to fill the Manhattan telephone book for those who remember what a telephone book was. And he is a veteran of the Tennessee World Affairs Council's Distinguished Visiting Speaker Program with an early appearance uh, in person in Nashville and uh, previous virtual visits uh, with us uh, with the support of the Wilson Center's Kennan Conversation Series. 
Professor Marquette, welcome to uh, Global Dialogue. Thanks for coming. Well, thank you. Thank you for so much for, for having me. I only wish that could be an in-person visit like it was, I guess, four years ago to the wonderful city of Nashville. And uh, although I do remember when you come in person as a speaker, Pat Ryan works you hard. I think I had five or six events <laughs> that he had me programmed for. <laughs> so we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't want you to leave uh, only with a Tootsie's t-shirt and, uh, and <laughs> just uh, one, one appearance. So uh, we were pleased to, to share you around town. Uh, especially with uh, one of our board members, uh, Dr. Susan Haynes, who uh, was your dissertation uh, uh, student at George Mason. So we're, yeah, we're yeah. very proud of her. Her dissertation was published as a book, which was really, really remarkable. Well, we're pleased that there, we have that connection and that uh, uh, we learned of Susan through you or we learned of you through Susan. I can't remember which it was, <laughs> but, uh, but welcome and, and thanks. Uh, we have uh, a lot of material to cover here. The last thing in the world I want to do is ask a uh, professor uh, to tell us the background on all, all of this, but we probably need a little background. And, and your idea, uh, maybe some opening remarks of, of where the issues rely on the question of the Russian-Iranian relationship and why it's, uh, why it's important to uh, the United States. So the Very floor good. is yours, Professor. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Pat. So yes, I'll, I'll try to be brief here. Uh, Russia and Iran is a fascinating subject. Russia and Iran, as we all know, have been working closely together, especially in Syria, where they helped save the Bashar al-Assad regime from being overthrown and to regain much of the territory it had lost to its various opponents. And underlying the Russian-Iranian cooperation on Syria are three common interests. One is their common antipathy toward the United States and the West more broadly. Second is their common fear of so-called color revolution or democratic revolution, which they see as an American effort designed to rally popular opposition to both the Russian and Iranian governments, among others, with the aim of overthrowing them, as well as replacing them with pro-American regimes, which may or may not be democratic. And third, Moscow and Tehran share a common fear of Sunni jihadists, such as Al-Qaeda and ISIS, which Moscow and Tehran both portray the US and some of its allies as, as supporting. Now, all three of these common interests come together in Syria. Neither Moscow nor Tehran wishes to see the secular Arab nationalist Assad regime based on Syria's Alawite minority overthrown or replaced either by pro-Western forces or Sunni jihadists, which Moscow and Tehran both fear could arise in their own countries. Now, but what's important to understand is that despite this common interest that they have, there have been and still are important differences and disagreements in the Russian-Iranian relationship. Now, while Iranians, as we all know, are still resentful over the U.S. role in the 1953 downfall of the Prime Minister Mossadegh and support for the Shah afterward until his downfall in 1979, Iranian resentments against Russia go back much further. These include the Tsarist conquest of Iranian territory in the early 19th century, Tsarist intervention to cross the constitutional revolution in the first decade of the 20th century, Soviet support for the so-called Gilan Soviet in northwestern Iran after World War I, 
Soviet occupation of northern Iran during World War II and their initial refusal to leave. Soviet support for Azeri and Kurdish communists after World War II, and then Soviet support for Saddam Hussein during the 1980-1988 Iran-Iraq War. More recently, Iranians have been unhappy about the long delay in Russian completion of the Iranian nuclear reactor at Boucher that they agreed to work on in the early 1990s, but only finished around 2012 or so. They're also unhappy about Russian hesitancy about selling certain weapons systems to Iran. Uh, what I think is interesting is that the Iranians, they finally did get the S-300 uh, uh, air defense missile system, but Turkey has the S-400. Uh, so, you know, Iran doesn't have that. Uh, and I think in the, um, what especially concerns the Iranians is Russians increasingly friendly relations with Iran's regional rivals, including Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and even Israel. Now, the Russian-Israeli relationship is of a special concern to Tehran. There have been numerous press reports about a Russian-Israeli so-called deconfliction agreement regarding Syria, whereby Russian armed forces do not interfere with Israeli attacks on Hezbollah and even Iranian forces, so long as Israel doesn't target Russian ones. Tehran, though, is hardly in the position to break with Moscow over even serious disagreements. For if it did, whom could Iran turn to for support? Not America, obviously. And while the Chinese-Iranian economic partnership is growing, China is not willing to play the active military role that Russia does. In addition, China also has good relations with all the American allies in the Middle East that Moscow does. What Iran and Russia each fear uh, about the other is that the other is gonna cut a deal with America at its expense. That the Iranians have seen Moscow's desire to work with Washington as limiting Russian willingness to sell sophisticated weapons to Tehran. And the recently released Zarif audio tape uh, revealed that Moscow, for its part, feared that the signing of the Iranian nuclear accord in 2015 would lead to a broader Iranian-American rapprochement that would reduce Russian influence in Tehran. And so they were trying to get the Iranians not to go along. Now, several American presidents have sought to work with Russia against Iran, but this does not work. The Russians don't fear a nuclear Iran as much as the Americans and their regional allies do. Uh, further, Russia benefits from the continuation of Iranian-American hostility. American sanctions against Iranian petroleum exports helps Russia along with other exporters. Besides, continued Iranian-American hostility, while Russia gets along with both Iran and its regional rivals, bolsters Moscow's claims to be able to be a more effective mediator, even if it never quite seems to be able to accomplish this. Now, Moscow certainly doesn't want any kind of regional settlement that leads to Iran withdrawing from Syria and leaving Russia with the prospect of undertaking the main burden of propping up Assad that it currently shares with Tehran or being unable to do so without Iran. Instead, Moscow needs Iranian-American hostility to continue in order to better pursue 
Russian ambitions in the Middle East. So while Moscow and Tehran have numerous differences and don't have much trust in each other, Russian-Iranian cooperation is likely to continue so long as both of them share a common antipathy toward the United States. And this is something that is also likely to, con to continue since both the Russian and the Iranian leaderships fear the impact of friendly relations with the US far more than they fear hostile relations with it. And I'll just stop there since I know we have only a short period of time. Well, Mark, uh, as, as with most things in the Middle East, it's complicated. Um, on, on the one hand this, on the one hand that. And, and before we get into it, let me just remind our audience, uh, we are looking forward to their questions and uh, for them to please add them to the Q&A box at the bottom of the Zoom screen. And we will turn to them uh, as we see them uh, uh, related to our conversation, but certainly uh, at, uh, at, at the end in our Q&A period. Let me ask you one question, uh, dropping back a little bit on uh, the bigger picture for Americans. And you know, the United States has been engaged politically in the Middle East since the end of, of uh, the Second World War and militarily, active militarily since the 1979 Iranian hostage crisis and, and the revolution. Uh, we've sent a half a million American troops to the deserts of Saudi Arabia, uh, first to protect the oil fields and then to reverse the invasion of Kuwait by Saddam Hussein. Uh, and, and then later, uh, we uh, invaded Iraq uh, with the uh, intention of finding WMD, and the net result was removing the, uh, the bulwark of Iranian expansionism potential uh, from right in the middle of the what is now the uh, called the, uh, the Shia Crescent, extending from Iran to uh, the Mediterranean. Um, you know, Americans are, are justifiably worn out by the investment of blood and treasure in the Middle East and uh, the diversion of our attention from other global issues. Uh, should, should we still be worried about what happens over there? Uh, and if, if so, why? Well, you know, I, I think we, we do need to be concerned about what happens in the Middle East. You know, people say that, uh, you know, petroleum is, uh, is not going to be used, but, you know, the world still relies on petroleum, uh, we do, and it's gonna be with us for quite some time. Uh, so, and of course the Middle East, especially the Persian Gulf area has so very much. So I think that uh, uh, we need to be concerned about this part of the world. Uh, and um, uh, that, that's just the way it is. You know, second, you know, there's many Americans who are especially concerned about Israel. And the thing about that is that if they're concerned about Israel, they're also concerned about Israel's neighborhood. Uh, and so I think that they would prefer that there would be governments uh, in the area that are either, you know, simply not hostile, but also willing to cooperate. And I think one of the things that we have seen, you know, with these Abraham Accords is that uh, um, there is a degree of cooperation. And of course, what underlies it is the common fear of Iran that both our Israeli and our Arab Gulf uh, Arabs share. Uh, but, but thirdly, even if these two things were not issues for us, you know, whether there was oil uh, or whether there was you know, simply a Palestinian state, I think it matters to the United States uh, if the government that controls the two uh, Muslim holy cities uh, is willing to work with the US 
or if it is totally hostile toward the US and the West and promotes jihad uh, against them. So I think that we have a lot at stake, whether we know it or not. And you know, I think that um, you know, obviously it's not been easy. It's been something of a mess, but it could be a lot worse. It could be a lot worse and the problems won't be contained. So I, I think that we have a very strong interest in, in seeing that, you know, uh, in my view, you know, conflict resolution takes place, that we see development, that we see, um, I would argue, that, you know, democratization. And also, I just think that, uh, yeah, we, we've made a lot of mistakes. We've uh, spent a lot of, you know, money and, you know, lost many, many lives. But look, if we just withdraw, things are not going to get better. Uh, and there's, a, there's an old adage about how you know, there's no such thing as non-interference uh, in, uh, in international relations, because when you decide you're not going to interfere somewhere, that means basically you're acquiescing to the victory of whoever is the strongest in that particular contest. And I think that, um, you know, uh, I see in my, my good friend, uh, Mushraf Jojati, uh, is is in the audience, you know, very concerned about Syria, and is, he's constantly reminding his friends, you know, on on Facebook, that you know that if the U.S. you know isn't involved in Syria, then the Syrian people are are going to suffer. They may suffer even if we are involved, but they're definitely going to suffer if we're not. And so I think that there's 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 lots of reasons, both sort of you know, real politic reasons, and I think you know humanitarian reasons. Uh, for us to be involved. Could we do a better job? You bet. But but that doesn't mean that we, because we haven't done a good job, uh, that we should simply leave. We have to figure out how to do a better job. It's in our interests, and it's in the interests of the Middle East. Well, in the, in the, in the interest of time, uh, I, I think we need to set, set the scene a little bit, but uh, I'll, I'll try to be brief with uh, my questions here, and, and perhaps you can just touch the tip of the iceberg on, on some of these things. Let's start with Iran. Uh, we know that they want to get back into the JICBOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action of the Iran nuclear deal, as it was agreed to in 2015. We know they have expeditionary activities uh, and, and spheres of influence in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Yemen, and elsewhere. We know they have an adversarial relationship with their Gulf neighbors. Uh, we know that the Revolutionary Guard appears to be ascendant in politics. And we know that many Iranians are fed up with the government, which is about to have an election and a new leader. So can you uh, kind of set the scene, describe what the view from uh, Tehran is of the neighborhood and, and the, uh, the, the external actors in the region? Well, you know, I think that the, you know, Iranians, um, obviously the Islamic Republic, you know, has, has uh, had, you know, big ambitions. Um, I think, though, that in many respects, they, they feel kind of isolated. Now, of course, their isolation is partly due to their own behavior, but I think they look to the west of them and they see a huge sea of, you know, Sunnis, uh, and in fact, sort of all around them, you know, in the Muslim world, they're one of the few, you know, majority Shia countries. And so I think that a lot of their sort of export of revolution behavior 
is is to um, you know to forestall what they feel is going to happen uh, if if the Sunnis you know, sort of rally themselves. Uh, and I think this is why they're fearful you know of groups like Al Qaeda and ISIS, which um, you know they 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 worry that this is not these aren't just movements that in fact you know, certain Sunni governments support them. You know, this may be an overblown fear, but, you know, I think that international relations is something that everyone's a worst case uh, uh, analyst. Uh, the thing is, is that for each of us, you know, that the worst case is something different. And I think for the Iranians, it's it's being overwhelmed by, by Sunnis. Now, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, in terms of the, you know, Iranian nuclear accord, you know, from, from their point of view, it was the Trump administration that withdrew. Uh, now, of course, their behavior since then of, you know, getting out of compliance uh, has not been helpful. And the Biden administration sort of wants them, you know, back in. And there's this dance about, well, who is going to move first, et cetera. I think we have to move at the same time, you know, but, but there is this concern, in other words, that I think most people would like to, would agree that, you know, some limitations on Iranian nuclear program is a good thing, but the Iranians are not, are obviously not limiting themselves in the regional context. And I think we just have to ask ourselves, uh, what's more likely, uh, an Iranian, a, a nuclear armed Iran with the joint comprehensive plan of action or without it? Because I think if, if you know, if it's not reinstated, that they're simply going to acquire nuclear weapons sooner rather than later. Now, I think also, you know, we don't like their regional behavior, you know, Syria, Yemen, Iraq, you know, it, the list goes on. Um, I think that for Americans, and this was true, I remember during the 1970s, uh, we don't like to compartmentalize. In other words, we had the same issue uh, with the Soviets in the early 70s, you know, pursuing nuclear arms control, but they were competing with us and very effectively in the third world, you know, through regional conflicts, you know, Southern Africa, Horn of Africa, Southeast Asia, Afghanistan. And I think that, that um, you know, I, I think it would behoove Americans to, to have sort of a uh, a more compartmentalized attitude. In other words, to be able to cooperate where you can cooperate, but really compete where your interests are at odds and not hold the area of common interest hostage to, uh, to solving all problems. And this is what we've, we've typically done. And, and I think not necessarily to our advantage. Well, domestic politics in the U.S. is, is not uh, helpful in, in that regard. Uh, let's, let's just touch on uh, Russia a little bit. You, you gave us a rundown of uh, the Russian uh, relationship with uh, the Gulf uh, over the years. Uh, anything else we need to know about the, the relationship? I know at the height of the uh, Syrian conflict, uh, Iran invited Russian bombers into a base to stage for attacks into uh, Syria, and then they were uh, asked not to do that again. Uh, I think some people in uh, Tehran um, spoke up about it. Uh, so it, it, it is a complicated relationship. Um, uh, sometimes hands off, sometimes uh, embracing. Uh, what, what should we know about? Where, where, where do you come down on uh, how the thinking is in, in Russia towards Iran? You know, I think that, uh, you know, from the Russian perspective, uh, as I indicated, the worst case is not a nuclear armed Iran. The worst case is an Iranian-American rapprochement. 
Because the thing is, is that even with Iranian-American hostility, the Iranians don't go out of their way to be polite to the Russians. Uh, you know, that, that, uh, that they, they pursue their interests pretty strongly um, in opposition to the Russians if need be. And I think one of the things that we're starting to see is that in Syria, you know, with the Assad regime more or less being saved, you know, I think it looks like, you know, Iranian-Russian competition for influence and, of course, for, for contracts, you know, for reconstruction is starting to come up. Uh, and so I think that the, the Russians, you know, that they don't, they don't um, regard the Iranians as a reliable ally. Um, and they, you know, you know, we don't, you know, obviously we don't see peace between Iran and the U.S. breaking out anytime soon, but this is what the Russians really fear. So if the JCPOA is not restored, Moscow will not be unhappy, it seems to me, that they, they would prefer that situation. But so long as Iran wants it, uh, Russia cannot oppose it. You know, when we, uh, we opened with the question about uh, the view from Tehran, you, you used the phrase uh, uh, export, exporting revolution. Uh, is Iran yeah. truly exporting revolution anymore? It, it seems that they're just exporting trouble, uh, not necessarily revolution. And if they are exporting revolution, that would seem to be a distractor for the Russians. Well, I think that they, what they do is they're supporting you know, Shia groups uh, in various places, obviously Hezbollah, Lebanese Hezbollah, which, you know, uh, are important fighting force in Syria. Uh, they support Shia militias in Iraq, Shia militias in, in Yemen. Uh, and, you know, and in Syria, I think what we're seeing, you know, the, the, the Assad regime is based on this Alawite minority. It's often described as an offshoot of Shiism. It's, you know, this was only something that was kind of recognized relatively recently, I think, by the Ayatollah Khomeini. In other words, it really is sort of a different branch. It's kind of a, a, a hybrid religion, if you will. Uh, it's not, you know, many Sunni Muslims don't consider them Muslims at all. But what we do see uh, the Iranians doing is trying to convert people to their own uh, Shiism in Syria. In other words, this is one way they're trying to, to gain influence. Um, and so, uh, you know, they, 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 they want to do this. They uh, see this as being in their, their interests. So they do have a, you know, an expansive version of, of what they uh, want. And I think, again, in other words, that they're doing it in, in their mind defensively. In other words, you know, better that they convert you know, others to Shiism than that those others be converted to Sunnism, especially Sunni jihadism. Uh, so they, they regard this as, 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 you know, not just spreading their own power, but forestalling the growth of their, their enemy's power. So I'll, I'll stick to my contention. They're mostly exporting trouble. <laughs> um, let's, well, let's revolution about... <laughs> is always trouble. So. <laughs> well, you know, uh, yeah, one, one man's freedom fighter, exactly. Uh, what about our friends in the Gulf? Uh, you, you talked about uh, the United States needing to maintain a good, good relationship uh, with Saudi Arabia. And, you know, despite uh, the conversations lately about Saudi Arabia and uh, the, the crown prince, et cetera, the uh, the relationship is is so complex on many levels that it's it's difficult to unravel what it would look like if the, if it was not 
uh, a friendly relationship. But uh, apart from specifically Saudi Arabia, we have uh, relations with the other GCC countries. Uh, some of that is complicated. Uh, the embargo of Qatar be by uh, some of the others and and uh, you know, the relationship between Oman and Iran is not the same as, as uh, Bahrain and uh, uh, Iran. So uh, are, are, they, uh, are the Gulf uh, Arabs, are, are friends in the Gulf, are they concerned about US staying power? Are they uh, looking at uh, Russia and China as being the next, uh, the next additions uh, in the Netflix series? Uh, how, how does that work out? Well, you know, they are concerned about U.S. staying power, but I think, Pat, you and I know, I mean, they've been concerned about this since the 1970s, you know, when they worried about, you know, you know, British staying power, of course, they left and then the Americans sort of more fully came in, but they've been worried about it ever since then, especially well, after the Bahrain Iranian and, revolution. Uh, Bahrain and after this, the Yom Kippur War asked the United States to leave. We had a, a base there and a ship base there. Um, I don't want to date myself, but that was my first uh, assignment in the Navy back in the day. And uh, Bahrain, after the Yom Kippur War, asked us to leave, and, and, I, and I think we, uh, we papered over it, and, and it worked out. Um, but yeah, it's complicated. Right. And of course, after the 79 revolution, I think they were very happy that we didn't leave. <laughs> so, you know, I think that one, one of the curious things is how our... Um, you know, at a time when U.S.-Russian relations are deteriorating, every single one of our Middle Eastern allies has good relations with Moscow. It's really very curious. Now, you know, some of our, our, our Israeli and uh, Gulf Arab uh, allies are concerned that the U.S. might get too close to Iran. This was their concern under the Obama administration somehow. So their reaction is to improve relations with Russia, which has far better relations with Iran, long-standing relations with Iran. And so it's a very odd sort of reaction in one sense. But I think also what our Middle Eastern allies feel is that, uh, in other words, with the Russians, they, they know that um, uh, the Russians are capable of helping Iran if they want to. And so, our Middle Eastern allies, they court the Russians. In other words, they want to give the Russians an interest in not supporting Iran, or at least not so much against them. And that's essentially what they've done. In other words, I think that for the for our Middle Eastern allies, you know, they fear what Russia can do, but what they what they also understand is just how venal uh, the Russian leadership is. In other words, that they will respond to money. As Putin, you know, his cronies around him, you know, that he has to buy their support. Uh, and let's face it, there isn't much available money from Iran under sanctions. There's lots of money available uh, from the Arab Gulf countries. And also, I think for the Israelis, you know, that there's technology. There's, there's uh, you know, this is a, you know, an important partner for, for Moscow in many respects. So, uh, Go ahead. We have a question from uh, Adam Blanco, who uh, notes uh, the recent news that uh, Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman has publicly stated he is seeking better relations with Iran. I didn't see that he made a public statement. I, I saw there were news reports that uh, that was going on. I think there, there was a meeting uh, between a, a Saudi and an Iranian in Iraq. But uh, Adam asks, is this overture sincere and, and why now? 
Um, I don't know. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, there have been occasions like this in the past where the Saudis and the Iranians have, have uh, you know, gotten to talk to each other. And um, I think what they found is that, yeah, they really do disagree. <laughs> they don't actually uh, have much in terms of common interest. I think from you know, the Iranian position has been toward the Gulf Arabs, you know, all our problems are due to the American presence. So if the Americans would just leave the Gulf, we would all get along just fine. Well, if the Americans leave, Iran's the very strongest power. And I don't think our Gulf Arabs uh, allies really want to find out what life will be like uh, without the US, but with Iran definitely there. So they're not reassured, it seems to me, uh, by these kinds of overtures. On the other hand, I think they do have an interest in tamping things down and making sure that things don't get out of hand. So, um, you know, uh, and also if the US is there, in other words, that, that if, we're, if we have their back, uh, then they can afford more, more readily to talk to the Iranians, in other words, see what they can, you know, get with them or what have you. So it's sort of a, um, you know, a, a dual track strategy, if you will. But we'll see how long it lasts, because often these uh, Iranian Gulf Arab dialogues don't last for very long. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting question. I wish we had more time to pursue it. But uh, the question of the GCC preparedness vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iran and the decades of uh, arms sales and training, um, it, it, it begs the question, how is it that the, the Gulf Arabs could not stand up militarily and, and forcefully against Iran? But that. That might that might be uh, a, a tease too far. Let me let me ask a, a question. Uh, you you uh, answered uh, your friend Mohaj uh, Mohaj, uh, who earlier asked uh, about Syria, but he asked specifically about targeting Iranian targets from Israel uh, in Syria. How does uh, Moscow manage the contradictory policy of of standing still for that? Well, it it does. It's it's uh, it's magic. It's uh... <laughs> you know, okay. I think that the um, the thing about it is that uh, you know I think that the Russians they have a history of you know, they work cooperatively with someone, but once the common enemy is in retreat, then they work against that that ally. And I think for the beauty for the Russians is that you know they 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 see themselves in competition with the Iranians in Syria but they don't have to do anything about it because the Israelis will do something and why not just let them do it now for the Iranians i think that the the thing is that um, they know this is happening but what can they do in other words who can they turn to for support there's literally no one and so they have to I think it's just a cost of doing business for them. In other words, that they, you know, we, we're not exactly sure of what the Israelis are not hitting, <laughs> what the Iranians are getting uh, away with, what Hezbollah's getting away with. Obviously, Israeli intelligence is, you know, uh, you know, uh, famous for being extraordinarily uh, knowledgeable, but something tells me that the Iranians are pretty good at this as well. So it's simply a cost of business for them. Uh, and, and it's not like they're going away. Because I think that, that the Iranian belief is that you know, they're bigger, they're stronger, that eventually that they will 
prevail. Uh, there's just more of them and their Shia allies than there are of the Israelis. You know, I don't know the answer, but uh, that seems to everyone seems to be to be uh, operating under the premise that 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 time is on their side. <laughs> we have a question from uh, Xianning uh, Huang, uh, who asks. Uh, he talks about uh, regarding Russian fear. Um, the U.S. should logically work to reconcile with Iran somehow, but uh, uh, it's probably a rhetorical question. What the likelihood of rapprochement? I, I think we're we're miles apart, and probably getting further apart with the the ascendancy of the Republic, the Revolutionary Guard, um, and the upcoming elections. Uh, uh, you know, we're losing the the incumbent president, uh, Mr. Rouhani. Uh, why why would uh, he asked how likely is rapprochement, and, and mm -hmm. that's that's a open mm -hmm. question down the road. But that's a very good question. It's a very good question, and because it seems to me that certainly, you know, since the end of the Cold War, several U.S. administrations have tried to work with Russia against Iran, and that hasn't gotten very far. No one's tried working with Iran against Russia. <laughs> it just the, the premise seems ridiculous. Although I would note that in the John Bolton memoir, you know, in the room where it happened, uh, that, that Bolton describes, you know, President Trump constantly having this idea that he could make a deal with the Iranian leadership and that the Iranian leadership wanted to make a deal with him. In other words, that, that Trump in a certain sense had this um, amoral uh, uh, realpolitik vi vision. And I think what, what what, what made it not work was that, as we saw with North Korea, is that he really thought that somehow, you know, good relations between two leaders alone would be good enough. And it's really not when you have governments with very different interests. And I think he also dangled in front of North Korea the prospect of building resorts on the coastline of, of North Korea. And, and that, right. And I, you know, from, from those, what, those from incentives the, just weren't. Mm -hmm. uh, in the, but in the from the point of view of, of Donald Trump, that that's his 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 business, you know, that that sounds good to him. Surely it would sound good to someone else. Make money, you know, through hotels and, and golf. That that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the North Koreans. And, and, and if it had worked, you know, that would have been fine. I think that, that he even got less far with the Iranians because unlike North Korea, Iran is the far more divided polity. In other words, that you have rivalries. And the moment that any one side is seen treating with the US, then the other side will pounce on it. And so it's just literally within Iranian domestic politics, very difficult to make any kind of deal with the US without hurting your own position inside Iran. And I just don't think that um, you know, Trump understood that. In, other words, he, his, in his mind, what he saw was the you know, Nixon in Beijing moment. And I think that's what he was hoping for, but obviously, the, you know, the Nixon-Kissinger diplomacy uh, was helped by the fact that we had a common opponent, the Soviet Union at the time, that that's what really drove uh, this. And even then, the Sino-Soviet split had been going on for 15 years before, <laughs> before Nixon, you know, gets to China. Uh, so uh, that is the thing, is that there needs to be some common uh, problem uh, forcing rapprochements. Rapprochements can occur, but they don't occur just because you have leaders 
who you know are looking for a photo op or think it would be a good idea something has to impel people who 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 don't want to do this to to change their minds in other words to to get over what their their proclivities are and at the moment there is no such um uh, incentive for for the Iranians. Now, people might think, well, what about all the, you know, the uh, maximum pressure campaign that we've launched? And the thing is that this actually doesn't really bother the Iranian leadership. Uh, that it may be hard on the Iranian people, even them to some extent, but that that shows everyone that you know they can blame all their problems on the American policy not their own incompetence and, or corruption. And so it actually helps them in many respects. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, again, what they really fear is, is good relations. <laughs> and so the question really is a good, is a good one. And, and I have a feeling that eventually, you know, at some point there will be a better Iranian American relationship, but I have a feeling that, um, you know, it's going to have to be under very different circumstances and probably with a different leadership in Tehran before anything like that that happens. But we shouldn't yeah, we, give up hope. Yeah, we see some of these uh, older leaders around the world who uh, forecast intelligence and otherwise suggest that their actuarial tables have run the course, but they just uh, keep hanging on. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't get it. Uh, uh, let's let's turn to a question from uh, from Gina Chinali, who's who uh, says that MBS has launched has also launched a PR effort to emphasize that Shiism is not an issue in Saudi Arabia and that sacred texts remain open to interpretation. And she she asks how the uh, uh, Iranian government might respond with a welcome a similar openness uh, towards Sunnis. And she uh, she mentions that having worked extensively in Saudi Arabia and in Iran, uh, she wonders if this could be a charm offensive uh, by Saudi Arabia to an audience beyond its own domestic arena. I, I don't think the evidence is in yet, but but what do you think? Is it, uh, I suspect nothing that comes out of Riyadh is not uh, vetted for the the impact on on multiple levels. Right. I just think that certainly, you know, Saudi Shias whom I know that they're not buying uh, this, uh, that they have, uh, you know, the, the, the Saudi government is very much anti-Shia and they are second class citizens. I think that the, the PR effort is a mainly at the American Western audience concerned with humanitarian affairs, human rights. Uh, and not so much uh, at the others. And, and, and I think you know, the, the Iranians are not exactly tolerant of Sunnis either inside Iran. So, you know, uh, I think that they're, you know, it's, it'd be a real contest to see, you know, who, who treats the minority more badly, uh, whether the Iranians do or whether the Saudis do. Uh, but I, I don't think that the, um, that the Iranians are gonna be very impressed uh, with this. Yeah. Adam uh, asks, uh, are, are the Russian and Iranian governments losing touch with their younger populations? We see uh, the, the protest uh, over Navalny and, and the anti-Putin uh, street protest uh, sweeping Russia that are being put down very forcefully. Um, do you see uh, youth? You know, we've had uh, nationwide protests in, in Iran, but uh, is this likely to continue? And, and there's clearly no uh, no ceiling on, on what the Iranian government is uh, willing to do to, to put those protests down as well. 
Yeah, I think you know Russia and Iran have that in common that their governments are prepared to act ruthlessly against any opposition. And obviously, they don't like the fact that there's this, you know, massive younger uh, opposition to them. But so long as these governments control their security forces, then I don't think that they will be threatened. Now, the real issue is, does the you know spirit of opposition that uh, has infected the youth will this ever infect the security services because that's in fact you know sort of the recipe for revolution you know in other countries in other words it's you know the the, the regime's armed forces are always strong enough to defeat the opposition it's when the regime's armed forces become infected with the spirit of opposition themselves that this doesn't happen uh, and so you know i think that um in Iran and in Russia, the regimes have gone to great lengths to make sure that this does not happen. And, uh, you know, so far, it's, it's, it's worked out for them. Now, you know, something could happen, and it'll be very surprising if it does, it always is. Um, and, and these things can, can change very, very quickly. All yeah. it would take, you know, would be the defection of a of a you know a general you know a unit commander him and his men going over to the other side and then the rest of the armed forces being being confronted with the prospect of fighting you know fellow soldiers like themselves and what happens is that you know a lot of defections might happen if, if someone you know goes over um, but we're not there yet you know we're not there yet uh, and uh, and I think you know these governments you know, they haven't gotten rid of opposition, but they're firmly in charge of the security services. And yeah, so long I mean, as they are, they'll they'll be in power. Yeah, you don't see the Berlin Wall coming down until it does. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Speaking of uh, uh, divisions in Iran, uh, Robert uh, says that he's read the Revolutionary Guard and the current uh, leadership, uh, President. Uh, Rouhani no longer see eye to eye. And you talked about the Zarif disclosure. Uh, and part of that was uh, how he felt that uh, he was somewhat uh, intimidated is probably too strong a word, but uh, put upon by Revolutionary Guard uh, elements in, uh, in some of the things he, he was made aware of or uh, spoke about uh, is, is a uh, Conflictive split imminent. Uh, we've got the elections coming up. What, what's your read on uh, Iranian domestic uh, leadership issues? Yeah, I don't think the civilian government has any prospect of dislodging the Revolutionary Guards. You know, I think that what we're, you know, if, if there's going to be any kind of change, it's going to become a more overtly Revolutionary Guard regime. It seems to me that. Um, you know, that's not going to become more of a democracy, <laughs> at least no. not at this point. So, uh, and then, you know, will they keep this a, a supreme leader, sort of like the uh, Tokugawa's kept the, the Japanese emperor, you know, sort of a figurehead or or what? I, I, have, I have this sense that what we may see is the Revolutionary Guards more overtly in charge, especially once the current Supreme Leader passes away as, you know, he will, what he's in his eighties, he's not well, you know, people have been saying for years that he has to go, well, eventually he has to go. Uh, but I have a feeling that the Revolutionary Guards are probably gonna become even stronger at that point. 
Well, you, you may, re uh, I'm sure you recall in 2015 when uh, King Abdullah died, everyone was saying that King Salman was not long for, for uh, uh, his rule. And uh, yeah. here we are in 2021. Um, yeah, it's always, it's amazing to me, like, you know, whenever people are, are sure that someone is not long for this world, it's almost a recipe that <laughs> actually they probably are, <laughs> they need to manage to hang on, uh, and they'll be saying it about, uh, they are saying it about Putin, but he's only, he's not that old, he's just two years older than me, so he's pretty young, you know, he could hang on for another, well, 2036, he's talking about, um, so yeah, these guys uh, are amazingly long lived or candy. Right, and, and nobody imagines what it would be like with, without them. And then suddenly, in some cases, they, they're gone. Uh, Bilal uh, Alakras uh, has uh, a couple of questions here, but I'll, I'll, I'll cut to the second one first. To what extent has the Russian-Iran military cooperation in Syria influenced Russia's relation with Turkey? And uh, that's that's kind of the new uh, um, the new presence in the region as uh, Ankara looks uh, looks to its east and uh, has uh, a, a stunted relationship with the Europeans and, and the United States. Uh, so Turkey in, in this mix of Russia, Iran, Syria, uh, Middle East intrigue. What what's uh, what should we be looking at? Well, you know, the Russian-Turkish relationship, if anything, it's, it's more convoluted than the Russian-Iranian relationship, uh, because what we see is, you know, obviously Turkey a NATO ally, but being far, you know, more and more cooperative with Russia, more and more, you know, animosity toward America and the West. Uh, and yet we see the Russians and the Turks on opposing sides in Syria. We saw this in Libya. Uh, we saw this this past year in the uh, you know the, the revived Nagorno-Karabakh dispute, and the the Turks, you know, giving tremendous support to the Azeris and helping them basically prevail. Uh, and this, to me, is just is just amazing that, in other words, that you know, Turkey has played a, a a much larger role in the Caucasus. And now we hear reports of the Turks supporting the Ukrainians. And I think for the Russians, this is just, you know, absolutely uh, no go. Uh, so, you know, I wonder just how long the Russians and the Turks can keep up with this cooperation. And I think it, it sort of the only thing that saves the, the relationship is that uh, the Turkish leader Erdogan is so uh, hot and bothered about the United States that, you know, no matter, you know, Russia still, working with Russia looks good <laughs> for him. Um, you know, I think it's a very volatile situation because Turkey's uh, clearly pursuing its own regional great power strategy. And I think it's, you know, um, uh, basically they, they've decided that the Americans are perhaps a spent force in the region. Um, and as we've seen elsewhere, you know, part of the America's alliance relationships, we have so many allies, it's not just simply about uh, defending our allies against common adversaries. Part of the purpose of our alliances is to tamp down animosity among our allies. In other words, that they, that we, we help keep the peace among them. And if the US is no longer considered strong, well, these animosities can flare up. And I think what we're seeing is that, 
you know, there are some of America's allies in the Middle East, they see Turkey as more of a problem than Russia. <laughs> uh, and, and that I think is, um, you know, I think that, that American diplomacy really needs to work on this, on smoothing over relations between Turkey and, and America's other allies. Otherwise, I think it's going to be very difficult for us. Uh, and, it, and it just gives the Russians an uh, opportunity to meddle, that's for sure. Yeah, um, Bilal has a, a second question here. And uh, I'll mention that he uh, was kind to uh, thank you for your insights and, and uh, we, we reiterate that as well. Uh, he asked about Israel and you talked about Israel a little bit, but uh, we know that uh, President Trump and uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu had uh, close, close personal relations. And now that President Trump is gone, we noticed at the beginning of the Biden administration, uh, the president uh, kind of iced uh, BB a little bit by not uh, including him in the early phone calls or uh, any sort of uh, reaching out. Uh, and Prime Minister Netanyahu has been a frequent flyer to Moscow uh, over the last couple of years. So what's, uh, and no, but no one is uh, naive enough to, to think that the Israel-United States relationship is not, uh, on solid foundations, but uh, clearly there's some some rustling in the leaves here. What what should we be thinking about as we look forward uh, in coming months to uh, developments in Israel? It, it's uh, got its own complex domestic political situation right now. Well, it's an interesting question because certainly the the Russian-Israeli relationship is you know something that was unusual. That uh, you know, before Putin, there really wasn't a very good relationship at all. Uh, but that uh, this is something that Putin has been very interested, in. and of course, you know, Russian-speaking Israelis uh, have politicians have worked on this, and in many respects, you know, Netanyahu has become the Putin whisperer, if you will. Uh, that uh, uh, and 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 to what extent are we seeing a good Russian-Israeli relationship or is it a Putin-Netanyahu relationship? Now, I would think that you know, any alternative to Netanyahu as Israeli prime minister is also going to pursue uh, a calm relationship with Russia. They're gonna be very solicitous. They're gonna to wanna to keep the deconfliction agreement going in Syria so that the Israelis can pound Hezbollah and Iranian targets and the Russians you know, not get upset about it. Uh, and uh, so I think these will continue, but whether there's the same warmth in the relationship and of course, whether it can survive Putin uh, is simply not clear um, at all. Uh, and certainly, you know, Israeli diplomats whom I've spoken to in the past, that they also, you know, feel that it's, it's, off, it's really more a Putin-Netanyahu relationship than a Russian-Israeli one. And so they're not quite sure you know, what's going to happen. Okay, we're close uh, on time here. Uh, so I'll thank our, uh, our audience for their questions. And, and I'm gonna ask the last one here, Mark. Uh, so uh, in the memo to President Biden that uh, you and I will write at the end of this <laughs> webinar, uh, what would your recommendations, what would our recommendations uh, for U.S. approaches to Iran and uh, to Russia in view of their relationship with one another? Is there a, a card that can be played here? And if, if so, which way uh, would you recommend leaning? Well, you know, I think that what the Russians are trying to say is that America can't talk with Iran, but we can, we the Russians can, and we can talk with everyone. 
therefore the Rus we the Russians are in a better position to help you resolve your conflicts, although they somehow never managed to do this. Now, the United States has had some experience with Middle East conflict resolution, the Camp David Accords, which are still going, you know, decades later. And what I really think is that as admirable as these Abraham Accords are, it's a much lesser feat to establish, help bring peace among our, our varying allies than it is between our allies and our adversaries. I personally feel that at some point, what the US should attempt to do, something that Russia really can't or won't, that we should try to help bring about, uh, if not peace, at least a detente between the Iranians on the one hand and our Arab and Israeli allies on the other. That, that would be a very, very difficult task but we are in a better position to attempt it because I think, you know, the Russians really aren't. Um, and I think that's, that's our strength, is that we are, are better at conflict resolution than the Russians are. They're, they're good at tactical ceasefires, you know, in Syria, whatever, you know, you, you know Assad and them surround a city. They let the, they, they, they let the uh, uh, insurgents, you know, take taxis or buses to somewhere else to fight again. Uh, and then of course, it, you know, war breaks out again. That, that's, that's what they do. Uh, and they do it pretty well, but they, they, they're not good at establishing peace. And in one sense, you know, certainly from the Cold War, the old adage is that you know, Moscow can't afford peace because if there really is peace in the region, well, then who needs Moscow? They only need, you know, uh, so- um, This is Chief Meteorologist Danielle Breezy, and you have a new- Anyway, <laughs> that was interesting. Uh, that's what I think that we should try to do. Uh, it will be monumentally difficult. And I'm not quite sure this administration can do it, um, but that, that I think would, would help everyone uh, if we can bring it about. Well, it, it uh, sounds like you and your colleagues inside the Beltway will be busy with uh, sorting through uh, all of these things as, as you've done so expertly over the years. Uh, thank you, Professor Mark Katz, Professor of Government and Policy at the Shar School at George Mason University and a uh, non-resident uh, scholar at the Rafiq Hariri Center of the Atlantic Council in Washington and a friend of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Mark, we're looking forward to seeing you on Lower Broadway here uh, uh, down in the Honky Tonks and, and uh, out to schools and visits and, and a global town hall when we get back to in-person events. Thanks. And thanks to the Kennan Institute for the uh, sponsoring the Kennan Conversations and for bringing us together in the first place. Uh, wonderful, wonderful group, that's for sure. Great. And thanks to everybody for, uh, for being with us tonight. Again, please consider becoming a member of the Tennessee World Affairs Council or making a donation uh, to the council. That's how we uh, pay the light bill and uh, keep these programs going. So take a look at tnwac.org uh, for your chance to join or to uh, make a donation. Thank you very much. And again, uh, Professor Mark Katz, thanks so much for being with us tonight. Everyone have a great evening. Good night. Thank you.